Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello there. How are you doing? I hope you're well. Now, if you would like to improve your spoken English, one of the best ways to do that is to actually talk to native English speakers. And I know that a lot of you don't really have access to many native speakers where you are. Uh, but now with with italki, um, you can speak to native speakers as often as you want, whenever you want. And it's all done on the internet. It's brilliant. You can just do it in your living room. You could sit on the sofa and have a chat with a native speaker. Or if you want more structured uh, learning, you could um, get in touch with an English teacher. They have, um, it's brilliant. They have loads and loads of teachers. They teach lots of different languages. They've got tons of English teachers. Uh, go to uh, teacherluke.co.uk forward slash talk to get started. And when you buy some lessons or some conversation time, you will get a discount. Italki will send you a voucher, which is worth 100 Italki credits, which you can use in the future. That's not bad. That's not bad at all. Okay, then. So check that out. Do check that out. Um, right. Okay. Let's start this episode then. Here we go. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Luke's English podcast. You can't touch this. This is a masterpiece of the English language. All righty then. Just think of the accolades it's received over the years. Wait a minute. Who are you? I'm Luke Skywalker. I'm here to rescue you. Ooh, this is going to be good. Really? Yes. I want to get into it, man. Ladies and gentlemen. This is Luke's English podcast. And this is Britain at its best. Oh, you lucky people! Hello there, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? I hope you're well. Um, I'm fine, thanks. It's very hot here in Paris today on this uh, Friday late afternoon on a Friday as I record this. Quite hot and humid. Um, I have to talk about the weather, okay? I have to, because I'm English. Um, it's just what we do, all right? It's probably the same for many of you in, in your countries, but certainly for English people, you can't go wrong with the weather as a quick topic of conversation just to make some small talk. So we often will make a little little comment about the weather. Oh, it's hot, isn't it? Or, uh, oh, it's very humid today. You know, that kind of thing. We, If it's humid, we use words like, it's a bit close today. It feels a bit close. Close means that it's, it's, you know, the atmosphere is humid. It feels like somehow the atmosphere is very close to you. It's difficult to explain that. It feels a bit close. It's a bit sticky today, isn't it? Yeah, it's a bit sticky. It's very hot. Um, hope that we get some good weather this weekend. Um, might have a barbecue or something. All right, so a little bit of small talk about the weather there at the beginning, um, but um, let's let's cut straight to the the chase here. Let's let's get straight to the point here. Um, uh, here is an episode about Brexit, um, the UK's referendum on the EU, the European Union, the EU. Finally, here it is. I've been mentioning this topic for a while, and so here it is. Uh, Brexit. You've seen it in the news. You've read it in the newspapers. 
The UK is having a referendum on membership of the European Union. Uh, and who knows, we might end up leaving. Just to be absolutely perfectly clear, the referendum means that uh, the people of the UK will be able to basically vote vote whether they want to uh, remain a part of the EU or leave the EU. Okay, so it's a really big deal, and uh, it could be a very, very big moment in the history of the the UK and the history of the European Union, and to an extent, a history of the world because it's a serious and significant moment. All right, uh, this is all over the news and all over the internet in the UK at the moment. Everyone's talking about it, not just in the UK, all over Europe and probably around the world as well. You can't escape this subject, certainly in in England at the moment, and it's going to get more and more intense. The closer we get to uh, the 23rd of June, which is the date of the referendum. Um, I've had plenty of messages from listeners asking me to talk about this on the podcast. So here we go. Now, I've been wondering how to approach this topic for ages. Um, It's actually a very complex issue, which I'd like to cover properly, taking into account the different arguments in some detail in order to bring, hopefully bring some genuine insight to the issue. And I think that podcasting is the perfect medium for having a longer conversation in which we go into all the little details and stuff like that. Um, Certainly with the issue of Brexit in the media, our emotions are being played upon all the time. There's a lot of emotional um, rhetoric going on, especially from the main uh, political proponents of both campaigns. And it's either, on one side, it's either fear, like, for example, in the case of David Cameron, who recently suggested that a Brexit could lead to World War Three. That's a very scary outcome. I mean, maybe he's got a point, but there's certainly a hell of a lot of fear being used there. So it's either fear on one hand, or it's kind of a a, a, a patriotic nationalism on an almost ridiculous level in some cases. Like, for example, Boris Johnson, who recently compared the EU project to the project of Hitler during World War II. And he kind of made a comparison there saying that basically the EU was a, was was like the same thing as what Hitler was doing, uh, but it, with using slightly different methods, which is an outrageous thing to say, really. Um, and, you know, Boris Johnson has said that, you know, by leaving the European Union, Britain could become the heroes of Europe. It's all very emotional political rhetoric. Um, but on Luke's English podcast, let's have a normal conversation about this, shall we? Um, now, I think there are several ways to deal with the Brexit subject on the podcast. Uh, for example, I could start with the vocabulary and the terminology of it, because there's a lot of very specific language involved in this subject. Uh, when you consider that the whole thing relates to Issues like the economy, immigration, sovereignty, legislative procedure, social policies, the environment, security, and just the inner workings of the European institutions. It's all very complicated and there's a lot of very specific, quite heavy language involved in it. Um, So I could take a bottom-up approach, which means that I start with the terminology, start with the language of Brexit and work up from there. Um, Or I could go with a top-down approach and just sort of look at the subject as a whole and just basically talk about Brexit. Um, In the end, I've decided to go with the latter, and that is basically to just jump right into the, the subject here in this first episode by having a conversation about Brexit. And who better to talk to than my dad, Rick. (laughs) 
so this is the first thing that you will hear on the subject on Luke's English podcast. It's a conversation with my dad. Um, so that's what you're going to hear first before I then expect to go into Brexit in a bit more detail in some later episodes, looking, for example, at some of the, the vocabulary of the subject. Um, now, what about my dad? Um, you, you've probably heard my dad on this podcast before if you're a long-term Lepster. I thought it would be interesting for you, my listeners, to hear on this podcast a conversation between a well-informed, articulate and intelligent man and his father. One final point here before we listen to the conversation. Uh, the day before I spoke to my dad for the podcast, I posted a question on social media saying, uh, saying this, my dad's going to be on the podcast talking about Brexit. Do you have any questions? Um, I got loads of questions from interested Lepsters. Thank you very much if you wrote one of those questions. What I did was to consolidate all your queries and points into just a few simple questions, which I then used as the basis for this discussion. So I don't actually read out your questions specifically or mention any of the names, but thank you anyway for your questions. I think we managed to cover a lot of them in our conversation. Um, anything that we didn't deal with, I will probably come back uh, later. I'll probably come back to those things later. Um, all right, so without any further ado, let's now hear the conversation with my dad, Rick, about the UK's referendum on Europe and all that Brexit stuff. And here we go. All right, so I'm sitting here with my dad. Hello, Dad. How Hello, are you? Hello, Luke. I'm absolutely fine. Nice to be here in Paris. Yes, nice to have you back on the podcast as well. Are you having a nice weekend in Paris? Yes, very good. We've, um, we've actually had a little visit to Nancy, which is a town in the east of France, which is extremely beautiful and elegant, and it's uh, in Alsace region, um, and it's somewhere we hadn't been before, so that's why we went, just to have a look at a Nancy. Very nice. And then we're back in Paris and heading for home tomorrow. Lots of um, lots of English people like to go on holiday in France, don't they? Yes, yes. Obviously, it's a very popular holiday destination. And not only that, a lot of British people in recent years have bought properties in, in France, particularly in northern France, Normandy, places like that, mm -hmm. where they can use them as holiday homes. They buy old, old farmhouses and get them all smartened up and use them as holiday homes. So it's a bit of a joke that Britain has bought half of France. <laughs> um, and, of course, uh, Britons are very uh, um, good travellers, a bit like the Dutch. They're, they're also the same. They travel around a lot. And British people like to go to Italy and they like to go to Spain. Um, so, yes, we spend a lot of holiday time in, in mainland Europe. Yeah. We are sitting, by the way, listeners, uh, in the Skypod. Did you know that this room is... I, I did know it was the Skypod, and certainly it is a Skypod, at the top of the world here in Paris, with an amazing view. That's right. Although the view is not very good today, because um, it's pouring with rain. It's been bucketing it down all day, hasn't it? You know what, Dad? I'm going to open up the uh, open up this blind, which is actually soaking wet. Can you see that? Yes, it's been leaking it's... because there's so much rain uh, pouring down. The blind is actually stuck to the stuck to the window frame. There, I can see the Eiffel Tower now. There you go. Look at that. A nice view of rainy Paris. Um, so, listeners, you might be able to hear the sound of the rain um, landing on the top of the, the Skypod, the roof of this, this, uh, this room that we're in. So, you might be able to hear that actual sound effects here in actual Paris. So, it's two British blokes uh, talking about the UK and the EU. And about Brexit, which is the um, kind of uh, 
trendy word, which is British exit from the EU. So people are calling it Brexit. There was a time when they were talking about Grexit, when people were speculating that Greece might have to leave the uh, the Eurozone. But mm-hmm. of course they didn't. Uh, we'll see whether it's just a month away from our referendum now. A month's time, the British people will vote on whether they should leave the EU or remain in it. A simple question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a huge moment, isn't it, in um, British and European history? Extremely significant. Um, you know, no country has ever left the EU. So it's uncharted ter- territory, and nobody really knows how it would work if there was a vote to leave. All the treaties, all the legal um, entanglements would have to be readdressed. Relationships uh, would have to be changed in terms of travel, uh, visas, Mm-hmm. Uh, working abroad, um, uh, whether there would be uh, obligations to stay with certain EU directives or not, what would be the relationship. Um, so it would be a unique relationship. Mm. Uh, obviously, there are other countries like Norway and Switzerland that are not actually in the EU, EU but they are very closely connected to it mm. in being in the same trade uh, negotiation uh, uh, agreement, I'm sorry, and even in the Schengen zone uh, for free travel. But nobody's left before, and uh, so no one's really sure what would happen. It's an extremely complicated situation, and I'm not entirely sure, Dad, if we are qualified to talk with the great authority on the subject. Do we have any credentials to, to talk about this subject, do you think? Well, I mean, no, it is a complicated subject, and I can't claim to be the world's greatest expert, but I have been um, a journalist for many years uh, and dealing with international news and observing what they call the European project and its development for a long time. And it's it's part of your life, of course, in that Britain actually joined the EEC, which became the European Union. They joined it just a few years before you were born. So you basically haven't known a time when we weren't in the EU. Mm. Um, but I have, and I, I can remember, you know, the referendum which uh, was held when we decided we were going to join, uh, which was, uh, I think, in 1973? 73. 73, yeah. Um, Prime Minister Ed Heath? Ted Heath. Ted Heath. Edward Heath, known as Ted Heath. Anyway, so there was a referendum in 1973 um, we're pretty sure it's 1973. <laughs> yes, I'm pretty sure For it some was. reason, I've got the date 1975 in my head no, as well. But I'm pretty it, sure it was 73. Anyway, and, ma- and uh, we did, you know, the majority was to join and we joined. Mm-hmm. And uh, ever since then, the, the relationship between Britain and the EU has been slightly Eurosceptic, slightly uh, different from mm. others. And I, it's difficult to say why exactly. I mean, that strip of water separating the British Isles from mainland Europe is, is you might not think it matters, but it does. Mm. It, it makes us just slightly separate. And our history, of course, has been one of being slightly independent of, uh, of mainland Europe. So, so there's, there's, there's so much to say, and it's such a complicated air, uh, thing to talk about with so many different aspects to it. Um, as you just mentioned there, there's, there's obviously the history of uh, the UK's relationship with Europe and the geographical uh, nature of that relationship. You know, the, the UK is an island, and that does have an effect on the way that people think about Europe, like right? the way that the British... 
uh, feel about the European Union and uh, all sorts of things. I mean, we could go back into history and look at, for example, what happened during World War II and the fact that Britain was never invaded and, and that sort of key moment in the, the creating sort of modern British identity, which is this, you know, this idea of Winston Churchill saying, we will never surrender, we will, you know, all that stuff. And, and I think that's kind of important to help to give context to the way British people feel about Europe to an extent that they that the Brits do still feel like they are an island nation and that part of that identity of the modern of modern Britain has come from that sense that we are slightly separate and that perhaps our, some of our best moments have been when Britain has stood alone and stood proud and things like that so that uh history helps us to understand to an extent why there is a different feeling or a uh, an, uh, a, uh, a slightly more skeptical feeling about the Europe European project in the UK, but not for everyone. No, I think it's a, it, it's quite right what you say. And the popular press in this country are very influential. And they've always played to this kind of nationalist spirit, you know, Britain. And um, they think it sells newspapers. But now, in terms of the Brexit debate, the, the press are pretty Eurosceptic, because they have been for a long time. They've always, you know, basically played this uh, great Britain card and we don't need any help from any foreigners, populist stuff. And I think that has got into people's brains. Uh, and so you have um, a rational arguments about the benefits of being in the EU, but the anti-EU factions don't seem to worry about the rational arguments. They, they basically are talking about something more mysterious than that, something about just being British and we don't need anybody else. Mm. Um, I did um, put onto Facebook just yesterday uh, um, a status uh, with a question saying to my listeners, um, I'm going to talk to my dad about Brexit. Uh, do you have any questions? And a number of questions arrived, uh, lots of questions from listeners, and I've I've basically been able to summarise them um, in this way. So essentially, the, 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 the questions are like this. What is Brexit, first of all? Why has the Brexit question come up now? What are the main arguments for and against uh, Brexit? Uh, what would be the consequences of it? And what do we, what do we think about it personally? Um, and, and I know that my listeners are going to want to get opinions from us, um, and we'll probably come on to the personal opinions later, but we're going to attempt to deal with it in a in a detailed manner without re, without sort of uh, what's the word for it resorting to simple uh, emotional arguments. We want to actually look at the real details uh, here. Uh, huh? Okay. It's going to be difficult, isn't it? <laughs> well, we'll try not to be too boring about it. Okay, but you did get a lot of questions, didn't you? Got loads of questions, yeah. We can't answer them all, ladies and gentlemen, uh, but we will attempt to basically respond to the, the basic points that were asked. Um, it's interesting that there are so many people from different parts of the world have been firing in questions yeah. at you. So I would have thought that, you know, perhaps in Latin America or somewhere, people might not be particularly interested, but it seems they are. Yeah. Do you think this is an important subject? I mean, you know, you might people might look at this and think, oh, it's just about the UK. But it's more important than that, isn't it? I think it is. I think obviously um, the European Union is um, the biggest trading bloc in the world. Um, you know, you can you can argue about China's uh, purchasing power, but as a free trade zone, it's the biggest one with 500 million people. 
And, of course, it's a very influential body. The EU is, you know, a democratic union of 28 nation states. It's actually a very significant union. And the fear is, I mean, and the people who uh, are in other parts of the EU, is that if Britain leaves, it will undermine the whole future of the project. And it may encourage other nationalist movements in other countries. And it may mean the end of the development of the EU project and uh, start of its kind of disintegration. But the other thing is, of course, they feel that Britain is an important member of the EU. It's it's one of the biggest countries. It's one of the biggest contributors, not only financially but but also to all the programmes. It is very involved in the EU, and so there is a feeling that uh, this would be a retrograde step. I'm talking about feeling in other countries, and many of the uh, leaders of other countries—Germany, France, Italy—have all spoken up and said it would be really bad news for them if if Britain left. So because. The UK is such a big player in Europe. If we left, it could seriously sort of um, affect the EU. And since the EU is so significant in the world, that would have knock-on effects all around the world. And, you know, the way that in this globalised world, um, everyone's interconnected. So if if the EU suddenly was uh, rocked by... Uh, a big change, then that's going to affect everyone, isn't it? Yes, and and if anyone who studies economics will know how important confidence is, yeah. this mysterious thing called confidence. And uh, obviously, if markets start being rocked by uh, uncertainty, doubt, lack of confidence, it means lack of investment, it means uh, uh, that there isn't um, a, a pattern of, of confident investment leading to growth. And a lot of companies that are involved in Britain and other parts of the world, would have to start considering whether they uh, should, perhaps if you're a car maker like BMW, making lots of cars in Britain, you might look at the new landscape and say, well, we ought to pull out of Britain and and build our cars in Spain or somewhere else. Nobody really knows, but it might have lots of disruptive effects, which would affect big business and might affect people's personal travel and other other aspects of their lives. Mm. Why did the referendum happen then, Dad? Why, why now, after this amount of time, why are we having a referendum now? That's a very good question. I mean, we shouldn't forget that this is politics, that um, a year ago uh, in Britain there was a general election um, and David Cameron had been the Prime Minister but leading a coalition, which is unusual for our country, with the Liberal Democrats. As the election approached, there was um, a, a lot of support for the party, relatively new party, called UKIP, which stands for the United Kingdom Independence Party. And they basically had one policy, which was leave the European Union. And the reason, they said, was because we couldn't control immigration if we didn't leave the European Union. And this was attracting a lot of popular support, so much so that the uh, right-of-centre Conservative Party was getting pretty nervous about them. And so during the campaign... David Cameron announced that there would be a referendum. He would renegotiate our terms of uh, being members of the European Union to get rid of some of the worst aspects that worried people. And then he would put the result to a referendum definitely by the end of 2017. And that was an election promise. Now, uh, so that's why we're doing it. But of course, as it turned out, UKIP didn't um damaged the Conservative Party very much in the election. Uh, they only got one MP elected. But I think part of that, Dad, is because... OK, so 
David Cameron had a had a plan, or the Conservatives had a plan, I think, which was uh, first of all win the election, get Indeed. get get the majority government, so that the Conservatives weren't in coalition with the Liberal Democrats anymore, so they would have a majority government. Plan number one. Second plan: renegotiate the European the Britain's membership of the European Union. Uh, step three: uh, have a referendum. Uh, step four: get a, a, a remain result. And then just carry on. That's okay? right. Okay. So um, David Cameron, the Prime Minister, uh, is uh, in favour of staying in the uni- union, right? So, okay, let, let me just go back and clarify that because it's a bit complicated. Um, so we go back to, let's say, 2012 or something, just before the previous election. Um, and uh, UKIP are on the rise. This is, as you said, this is this party who are primarily focused on getting the UK out of the European Union as a simple solution to all of our problems. Uh, the problems being mainly immigration. Too many immigrants, everything's, everything, you, you know, your bus is late, immigrants. You know, you can't get a job, immigrants. England haven't won the World Cup since 1966, <laughs> immigrants, right? So, so UKIP were, the, were this uh, party getting more and more popularity and this was a threat to the Conservatives and so the Conservatives thought right what are we going to do I know to win the election we will put a referendum on the agenda right so they they promised the people if you vote for the Conservatives you'll be voting for the choice to um, you know have your say on EU membership and naturally lots of people lots of Eurosceptics who might have voted UKIP in the election voted for the Tories because they wanted a chance to vote in the referendum okay and what happened then is that the, the, the election happened last year and UKIP didn't get many seats. They only ended up with one seat. Now, that's partly because of our electoral system, but also, I think, because people chose to vote Conservative because they wanted this uh, this referendum. So a lot of the Eurosceptic, Eurosceptics voted Tory in order to get the referendum. As a result, well, it's complicated, but partly as a result, uh, the Conservatives got majority government, right? That's right. They got a clear majority, and a lot, the evidence shows that quite a lot of former Labour voters were the people who were being attracted to UKIP as opposed to Conservative voters. So Labour didn't do very well. Conservative ploy to make sure that anybody tempted to vote UKIP would vote for them because they'd get a referendum guaranteed. And it seemed to have worked. The trouble was that David Cameron didn't really believe in leaving the EU and he had to then go through this negotiated new relationship, which anybody who knows anything about the EU knows that you either play by the rules or you don't. So, and and the, the idea of a completely new relationship was never a very uh, persuasive argument. But he went round and he came up with some new ideas and claimed victory and then campaigned vigorously for us to stay in. So that was that was step two of his plan. So step one, get the, you know, win the election and get majority government. Step two then was announce the referendum like he promised. Okay, he said uh, there will be a referendum. He didn't announce the date first, but he said there would be one. And then step three is go in, go to Europe, go to Brussels and visit all of the um, different, you know, leaders and ne- renegotiate Britain's membership. So his, I think the idea there was that he would show the public and specifically show the Eurosceptics in UKIP and Eurosceptics in his own party that he was trying to fix Britain's relationship with the European Union. And then he would be able to present to the public a choice, which was you vote to stay in with renegotiated terms 
or you vote out. And I think he did that because he want. I think he wanted us to stay in. Oh, absolutely. And so he needed to show that he was taking a strong position on Europe. And so it, you know, voting Remain was the better of the two choices. You know. Yeah. So that's where we are now. And that's and, where we are. Uh, the the uh, the fact is that um, a lot of uh, independent voices are speaking up for us to remain in the EU. Notably, uh, Barack Obama, who visited the UK quite recently and is an extremely persuasive orator. And he was very persuasive in, in saying why, uh, as far as the United States was concerned, they would be very much in favour of EU remaining. What did he say? He was like, the people of Britain, <laughs> people of Britain need to go on holiday. They want to eat cheese. And oh yeah, something like no, that. No, he didn't say that. He no, actually, I, though it does sound a bit like it, Luke, I have to confess. Uh, his main point was about trade, and there was a lot yeah. of talk about this big EU-US trade deal, which has been, they've been negotiating it now for two years, and it's going to take another two years. And it's quite controversial. It's You listeners may have heard of the TTIP. It is supposed to produce the biggest ever global free trade agreement between all of the EU and the United States. And obviously there are voices who are worried about aspects of it, and we're not going to get into that. But he was in Europe basically promoting the TTIP. And talking about that, he, he was basically saying that if Britain leaves the EU, they're talking about negotiating their new terms with countries like the United States. He says, well, we're too busy negotiating with the EU. You would be at the back of the queue right. in negotiating a, a trade deal with the US. To, to, oh, that's complicated. That's, that's about trade deals and things. So what we need to do now, it's so easy for this whole subject to get out of control and get too complicated. I think we understand the, the situation then. So we're now in a position where we've got a month left and various people have been campaigning uh, for a remain vote, so there's two camps. There's two um, camps, right? Yeah, campaigns. Yeah. Two campaigns. One campaign is leave, vote, leave. The other campaign is vote, remain. Okay, the vote, leave campaign. These are the people who want us to leave, and uh, they are very vocal and very passionate. In fact, um, they're the ones who who seem to have the loudest voices. They're the ones who seem to be dominating the media. And we get people such as uh, Nigel Farage, the leader of UKIP. We also have, famously, Boris Johnson, the former mayor of London. Uh, he's probably the most uh, outspoken uh, voice uh, for, the, for the Leave campaign. Boris now is travelling the country in a bus, which is called the Battle Bus, I don't like the name Battle. Why is it called the Battle Bus? I think these campaign buses in Britain are always called the Battle Bus. Okay, so he's battling for Britain to leave, basically. Yes. All right. And so he's, you know, travelling around, campaigning, hitting the streets, uh, and, you know, uh, talking to the public, trying to persuade everyone to leave. Now, of course, there are arguments to say that everyone has their own personal reasons um, and their own vested interests in, in both arguments. Um what do you think? What do you think, Dad? Do you think we should leave or do you think we should remain? Well, I, I can, you know, tell your listeners that I'm, I'm not entirely um, impartial on this subject because I do have quite strong views on it. Um, I think it would be a disaster for Britain to leave the European Union. Um, nobody is really in this campaign speaking up for the many benefits that we get from being members of the EU. Um, the pro-campaign 
tends to concentrate on uh, what they call project fear, which is all the terrible things that would happen if we left. But it would be a great, great uh, advantage, I think, to a lot of people to hear a little bit more about the advantages of being in the EU, and there are many of them. And uh, I personally think that uh, going into isolation in a globalised world would be nuts. Mm, yeah. yeah. I mean, my listeners will be thinking, what does Luke think as well? Well, it shouldn't be a surprise that I also think we should stay in the European Union. And I'm, I, I agree with you, Dad. Now, what I'd like to do at this point is try and go through a few main points as a way of looking at sort of the arguments, the main arguments. And these okay. are taken from the questions that people fired into you uh, uh, in the last 24 hours. Yeah, the main, the, main, uh, the main thrust of those questions seem to be, you know, what are the main arguments for, for the UK to stay and what are the main arguments for the UK to leave? What would be the consequences uh, on, on people and, you know, the whole situation? And what do you think personally, all right? Now, um, because I want balance as well, I want to understand the reasons why people think we should leave. I don't want to just uh, dismiss those arguments because people feel very strongly about that. And I think that they, they must have some fairly good points. And they must do. I mean, I don't agree, but there must be a, uh, some thinking behind that, of course. So I'd like to, you know, be respectful towards the Leave campaign. Of course, we can, we can relay what they're saying. I and mean, they're being quoted every day in, in the newspapers, on the radio, on the TV. So we know what they're, they're saying. And it's quite easy to summarise that, um, you know, for an, people listening in. I've got an idea, right? What we can do is, I, to an extent, I can play devil's advocate here. Okay. What do you think? Okay. So that means that I'm going to sort of voice the the arguments for for leaving. Okay. And then you can kind of respond to those <laughs> well, things. Well, that's right. <laughs> All right. So, uh, you know, just to be clear, I think we should remain, and I pretty much agree with my dad, but just for the benefit of the argument, I'm going to try and sort of be the voice of the, the leave campaign. And we'll go through a few different topics, okay? Okay. So we're going to start with the, the membership fee. All right. So this is where I am now Boris Johnson or, or Nigel Farage or something. So the, the UK currently spends about £13 billion. Pounds. Well, last year we spent £13 billion pounds on, the, on the EU. Fair enough, we received £4.5 billion pounds of spending, EU spending in return. That's where they spent you know, money on various projects in the UK. But on balance, we, we spent... Um, you know, net, our net contribution was £8.5 billion. And if we left, we would obviously make a huge saving by not having to spend that money. So if we left, we would save on our membership fee, we'd save, you know, um, £8.5 billion. So it'd save us money from the beginning. And we could use that money to spend it on very important things in the UK. Why are we giving our money to Europe? We should spend it on British people. Well, I, I obviously would respond to that by saying that these figures are extremely crude figures. And even though 8.5 billion annual contribution, or if you like, 10 billion euros, sounds like a huge amount of money, it is a tiny amount compared with the annual GDP of the United Kingdom. I think it's less than half of 1%. And so it is, and it is about... 7% of what we spend each year on our health service alone. It is not a huge amount. And if you're going to be um, a member of this union, 
Uh, obviously, the more affluent countries are net contributors, and the poorer countries that are bringing their economies up to speed are not, and that's only right. Um, but I think that if you're a member of any organisation, you get benefits for your membership fee. And the benefits are difficult to quantify, but we have lots and lots of benefits for being members of the EU in terms of collaboration on anti-terrorism or defence, in terms of environmental uh, standards, in terms of the free trade, which of course is very difficult to measure. Uh, if we weren't in the free trade agreement, it would cost us a lot more than 10 billion uh, euros a year to be able to trade in that kind of way. There are many, many other benefits. Uh, I'm particularly interested in scientific research where um, the U European Union does coordinate lots of big research programs. They have a very well-funded um, European research program ranging from laboratories trying to find new um, antibiotics uh, to um, the uh, chemical analysis which tells you whether goods are safe or whether they're not and, and the European Union has been global leaders in making sure you eliminate dangerous items from the goods that we use. Uh, there's many, many advantages we get which you can't actually put a price on. Right, okay. Um, well then, maybe we can go into a few of those areas where Perhaps, as you argue, there may be an advantage for us being in, uh, even if uh, we, it costs us some money. We probably get lots of money back and other, um, as you said, things that we can't put a value on. It's a on. complicated thing. I mean, if you talk about farm subsidies alone, it's very difficult to come up with a net figure of how much our farmers gain from being part of the common agricultural policy. Yeah. Uh, but also we have cohesion funds and we have projects um, the charities, big charities, Oxfam in the United Kingdom reckon that by bidding to the European Union for funds to do certain projects, uh, it gives them about £30 million a year uh, from the EU to help fund their projects. Well, the EU gives £30 million so to... So the charities are bidding for project money and getting it. Um, even the British Museum gets £3.5 million a year from the EU. Um, so it's difficult to know what figures are counted in and what figures are counted out. But one thing is for sure, if you're not in the EU, you don't have access to structural funds, cohesion funds or regional funds. OK. OK. <laughs> Strong argument. Um, uh, OK, let's talk a little bit about trade, if, if you don't mind. Do you want to talk about trade? If you like. Um, so, OK, now the, the Leave campaigners will say that uh, it's about regulations, okay? So trading regulations. So leave, the Leave campaign say that uh, uh, it's unfair on British businesses because they have these big um, books of regulations which they have to follow, and the regulations are ridiculous and complicated, and, and they don't sort of uh, uh, match the in our interests. Like, for example, the, the example that's always made is that uh, there are all these regulations about the curvature of bananas, and that you're not allowed to sell bananas that uh, are curved in the wrong way, and it's ridiculous, and it's, there are too many rules, and you know uh, the Leave campaign want Britain to be free of these rules so that we can just go about our business without having to worry about complying with you know, all these different rules and things. So leaving the EU would allow British business owners to 
just be able to run their businesses without interference from Brussels. Yes, it is, um, you know, one of the arguments for leave. There's too much what we call red tape. It's a, it's a, a slang expression which basically means bureaucracy uh, because it goes back to the old, the old days when lots of documents and regulations were literally tied up with red tape. And that term still exists for bureaucracy. So this is too much red tape. Now, this is a classic kind of right-wing business agenda. Businesses don't want regulation. Businesses are not interested in regulation. And they, they want the American model, which they see as being free of any, any kind of regulation. But, of course, the EU is defending the citizens. That's what it is. It's difficult to explain the EU to some people. It's not a government with an opposition. It's actually representing the citizens. And it's trying to produce the best environment for us to live in, the best conditions for our prosperity, and the best security for its citizens. So businesses sometimes feel that it's just getting in the way. The popular press finds it very difficult to come up with specific examples that make sense. The famous, you know, bent bananas or straight bananas or whatever... Well, it was only a popular press story because the European Union was trying to get a standard across all 28 member states of what are grade A vegetables and grade A fruit so that- and what is grade B. And, uh, and so, you know, the popular press leapt on that and saying, oh, they say we can't sell bent bananas. I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous. Uh, on the other hand, we are now in a position where um, just recently our roaming charges on mobile phones across the whole of Europe, the costs have come crashing down because of a long negotiation with the phone companies carried out by the EU, and they have basically forced them to stop these rip-off charges, and next year there won't be any roaming charges at all. Uh, If you're anywhere in the EU, it'll be just the same as if you're in your own country. So, so basically, your response to to the to the argument about regulations is that those regulations are actually for the good of the people. There are very few regulations that the Brexit camp can flaunt as an example and say, "Look at this bad regulation." They have uh, have come up with hardly anything that is bad for you. So, in fact, regulations are good because they they protect they cons- protect the consumers, right? And as you said, an example of that is the roaming charges. This is mobile phone companies that would like to charge us extra when we travel to to Europe. So, for example, when you come to France and you bring your phone with you, um, the, the phone company wants to charge you double or something. Just the same as if I was in Brazil. Yeah, they want to charge you like... Uh, expensive charges for using your telephone here. Uh, but what the European Union is doing is, is attempting to prevent the companies from charging... Well, very they've h- succeeded. The, the deal is done in two phases. The first phase, big reduction in the charges, which has just happened. And the next phase, next year, will be no, char- no roaming charges at all across the 28 member states. So a benefit, then, of EU regulation is that it's, it's much cheaper to use your phone in the European Union. Yeah, and other regulations are about you know clean water and um and clean air and all sorts of other things which if if you try and do it at a national basis it doesn't make sense a lot of things uh have to be handled um pan nationally there's not much point in trying to have an environmental policy if the country next door has a different one <laughs> i'm supposed to be uh arguing for the leave campaign aren't i yes but go on it, try again um <laughs> 
but bent bananas, bananas though, bananas. Um, bloody bureaucrats in Brussels and banana, bananas. Why are they writing laws about bananas? It's ridiculous. They're just faceless bureaucrats. I have to help you out here. I have to say that there are one or two areas where I think the EU is a bit bureaucratic. Yes, I, I do think so. And I mean, I sometimes go and you know, work in Brussels, and I meet people who are involved in programs which I think are. Maybe a bit extravagant, maybe a bit of a waste of time. And when you look at all these big shiny buildings and the bureaucrats driving around in their big shiny cars, you do sometimes wonder whether they have actually been in touch with a Europe affected by a long-running recession. And we've had countries like Spain with 40% unemployment, Greece still struggling to get back on its feet uh, after its, you know, huge debts and the banks collapse. We've had a lot of, you know, pain out there and you feel that maybe the European Union has been insulated from that and it could be leaner and more efficient and more focused. And I think there's a lot of people who would, would say that would be a good thing, not just in Britain, in many other EU countries. But the way to, to achieve it is to be in there and make it happen. Walking away isn't going to do any good at all. So the point there is that, OK, the European Union as an administrative um organization is very complicated and there is a lot of bureaucracy and it's i mean it's insanely complex uh, but that's not necessarily a reason for us to just leave uh, we should try and you know uh, understand it and try and be in the driving seat of europe right Yes, I think that's right. I think, you know, you've got to be in it to, to improve it. You have to be in it to win it. it. You have to be. And, but uh, it's true that a lot of people find it very complex. And uh, during this campaign, it's become evident that many, many people in Britain really know very little about the EU. I mean, it's spectacular. The surveys have shown that people don't know which states are member states. They don't know how it works. Um, and I think that's probably a failure of the media as well as being a bit of a failure of the um, the administration, that it's a great pity that in other European countries people are interested in the European Parliament, which now has substantial powers. They know who their members of the European Parliament are. In our country, we don't know who they are, mm. and um, most people don't even know that you know the three institutions, how they work together, the Council the, the, of Ministers, which is the member states, the Commission, which is kind of the driving force and the, and the uh, civil service, and the directly elected parliament, how these three work together to agree on, on legislation or agree on regulations or agree on policies that they voluntarily uh, sign up to. You know, you know what's, con you know what's uh, con a problem with this whole thing is that it's, it is confusing. There's no uh, way around it. I mean... I was just listening to you there, and to be honest, I'm confused. Whenever anyone talks about EU institutions, I get really confused and I get fed up, right? Now, uh, but again, that's not really a reason for us to leave. Just because it's confusing doesn't mean it's necessarily, um, uh, you know, bad for us. Now, another argument for the Leave campaign, they say that the European Union is an undemocratic um arrangement right so it's about sovereignty sovereignty is one of the big things in fact you could say it's about it's mainly about sovereignty about immigration and perhaps about the economy but sovereignty seems to be one of the big things and when we talk about sovereignty we mean uh britain's independence to govern itself and people say uh the the brexiteers say that the european union 
is undemocratic and that is bad for Britain's sovereignty. Is the EU undemocratic? Well, I think that that the EU is very open. It's a model of openness uh, in that all the committees, all the decisions are posted online and most of them are open to the media and so on. Unlike in London, where the uh, a lot of the work behind the scenes is uh, is not open. But uh, the the institutions are these three institutions I mentioned. One is the member states, which is all the elected parliaments coming together to agree things. So if you believe your government is democratically elected, they are your representatives there. Are they? Are they democratic, democratically elected? The, the the Council of Ministers are. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, like the prime ministers get together for what we call European summit. They've all been elected. So so they're representing their own countries at, at that forum. So that's that's a democratic institution. The second one, the European Parliament, is obviously a big directly elected body of people who represent their part of Europe, their region mm. of mm-hmm. Europe. Mm-hmm. The third bit isn't. Right. This is the commission, but it's like a civil service. You don't elect your civil service either, yeah. and it gives you some continuity, and they are supposed to uh, you know, bring forward legislation which the member states want, negotiate an agreement that is acceptable to everybody, and get it through the parliament. So just let me just clarify that. There are three parts to the European Union, let's say, in a fairly simplistic way. You've got the European Parliament, and that's basically members of parliament from each member state that have been elected within the member states and they go and they represent their countries. They represent a region within their country. Right. There are 731 of them. Okay, 731 members of the European Parliament. Many, many of our MEPs are Eurosceptics, which is interesting, that, that it seems people who are engaged in European politics in the UK are the ones who want us to be out. That's why they're engaged in it. They're the ones that lead the agenda. They lead the conversation on Europe because they're passionate against it. Everyone else is like, well, it's fine. What you know seems to be all right. The only ones who are going on about it seems to be seem to be the ones who don't like it. Well, there's not a majority of Eurosceptic MEPs from our country, but there's certainly a, a significant number. The vocal ones. Uh, well, yeah, and they say, oh, it's all awful. Vote for me, and I'll sort it out, and and so on and so on. And that's quite attractive for a campaign where people don't really understand what the issues are and how they are relevant to them. The point was that okay you got the european parliament and it's made up of elected representatives fine then there's the european uh, council who who's in the eu council the council is is the way the nation states coming together is described okay uh, so a european council with a capital e and a capital c is where the leaders of the countries come together in a summit and it's, it, we call it a summit they call it the european council but in between those summits, there are m- meetings of the ministers, the Council of Ministers meetings, and that's within the broad umbrella of the council. So when all the foreign ministers get together, that's the foreign ministers' council. The environment ministers get together, that's the environment council. So the ministers of different portfolios meet together in council meetings, and then when the leaders all meet, it's called the summit. So so the council is where the member states are come together to collaborate, to share knowledge, and to agree joint actions. That's right. That's the council. That's when the leaders get together. In my opinion, it's the most powerful part of the three parts of the of the of the power block of the this triangle of power in the EU. I'm just trying to. If work, the work. member states 
states meeting in council, the member states don't want something to happen, it doesn't happen. So I'm just still trying to understand what the council is, but you have explained it. I'm now clarifying it, right? So basically, the council is when the leaders of all the countries get together for a meeting. Yes, it's yes. when they meet maybe in the Agriculture Council or the Fisheries Council, but it's when the member states come together uh, formally in what is called a council just meeting. A, just a yes or no answer, right? The, for this little section, just give me yes or no answers, okay? <laughs> so European Council, uh, that would be, for example, when David Cameron goes and meets other leaders and they talk about European stuff. Yes, that's the actual council. yes or no answer yes. <laughs> yes. That's, that's that's the summit yes all right that's the summit which happens every year okay oh they happen more often than that two every two or three months okay right. and then there's also meetings that come under the bracket of the european council ministerial level ministerial yeah. level for example the minister for the environment from every single member state they get together and they talk about environmental stuff yes so those people are democratically elected yes because they've been elected within their home countries yes okay so that's EU part, uh, uh, European Parliament, democratically elected. European Council, democratically elected people. Then there's the European Commission. You said they're basically like the civil service. They're the office workers of, of the whole thing, right? Yes, it's not quite a civil service because it is more political. Uh, and the, um, the, the parties, party blocks in the parliament put forward their candidates to be the, the head of the commission. And, and Jean-Claude Juncker emerged as being the head of the commission this time around. Um, but it's it's not an entirely democratic process. It is uh, They tried to de- meet the complaints that the commission isn't very democratic by using that mechanism. I wasn't terribly convinced. And I don't think it matters much. I think you do want a good professional who knows what he's doing, who's supported by the member states to lead the commission which is yes the civil service but it also has um you know more political power and it puts forward legislation and it tries to negotiate deals okay so the commission is not entirely made up it's not completely democratic the commission but as you said before just like any government for example the the government in the uk's government in westminster that has many people, the civil service, who are not democratically elected. For example, the, the permanent secretary to the prime minister, no, he or she, I don't even know who it is, is not democratically elected. And plenty of other civil servants who do government work, um, they're not elected. So any government is made up of elected and unelected uh, um, representatives. So, so the point here is... That argument, which is the EU is an undemocratic thing which is destroying the sovereignty of the member states, is it, it's not really a fair argument. I don't think it's a fair argument. It, it's one that is wheeled out a lot by the Brexiteers. You know, who are these people telling us what to do? And they talk about having supremacy of the British Parliament mm. over European law. That's also slightly um, misunderstood, if you like, uh, because a, a lot of the European law um, is agreed in advance in the council meetings and it won't get put forward and get through the parliament unless it is actually agreed. And uh, most of these things uh, don't affect Britain very much because they are often bringing up all the 28 member states to a certain level, a mm. certain standard. So let's say mm, something simple like water quality. You've got to reach this level of water quality by this certain date. That's a regulation. Well, you'll find that in a lot of countries, they've already reached it. So it, it, it doesn't 
actually apply. In other cases, yes, there are targets that you can strive to reach. In our case in Britain, where we have a lot of beaches, the beaches have, have met European standards and it required quite a long time. To, yeah, to get the sewage systems changed and to uh, to get water treatment plants introduced so that they would meet the European standards. And these targets and timescales are actually quite useful for governments to, to say, well, we've got to do this yeah. because Brussels says so. Can I just make a point here? Listeners, did you notice that? My dad just mentioned that we have a lot of beaches in the UK. We do. We have beaches in the UK. Not the place that you would imagine for a beach holiday, uh, perhaps, but we do. And they're, they're cleaner now than they used to be. Much. They're much, much cleaner now. I mean, we our beaches, some of them used to be a little bit dirty. And, uh, <laughs> you know, they, they, the, the, the quality of the water and the cleanliness of the sand and stuff was was not great in the in the 70s and now most of our beaches are clean and 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 pleasant places to to spend time they might not be the hottest sunniest places but they're clean and there's you know they're they're nicer than they were the point i'm making is that a lot of uh, the argument from the people who say we are told what to do by brussels is actually not entirely true that all the regulations are agreed by the member states, and a lot of these regulations are things that don't particularly apply to Britain. So uh, you could say, for example, the regulation about the size of a pen that you can keep a pig in when it's when it's having piglets. Wait, when you keep a pig in a pen? Yeah, yeah, in, indoors in a shed. Not in a not in a pen that you write with. No, not a pen you write with. A, a kind of we call it a pig sty, a, a, a sort of metal crate. It's like a house for and, a pig. And the uh, you know after a lot of uh, arguments with the farmers and everything else, you say this is the European standard, which is you know fair and uh, is doesn't stress the pig out and uh, and blah 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 you don't want stressed out and pigs. so you know you don't so you might say that's our european standard for bringing up you know pigs and it they're looking at countries which haven't traditionally had that standard. I mean, let's name names. We're talking about countries like Romania, and we're talking about other other yeah. countries that haven't had the same standard. So bringing everybody up to standard is one of the things that the legislation does, and it, it is actually normally good. Right, so basically, <laughs> the European Union is right about a lot of these things. Okay. <sighs> <laughs> trade. Can I just let's just say something about trade? <laughs> We're going on yeah, for a long know, time. Yeah. I know, but there's just so many things to cover. I don't want uh, my listeners to feel like we haven't done it properly. But you know, listeners, ladies and gentlemen, if we talk about Brexit, it's impossible to talk about this subject in a clear way in a short amount of time. It's just not possible. I tell you what, we ought to do. Yeah. The the, the uh, Remain camp have pretty much won the economy argument. They've, they've got the Governor of the Bank of England, the IMF, uh, lots of world leaders, other people saying it would be economically really bad for Britain if we left. So I think they, they've pretty much won the economic argument. But the other one about immigration, um, they haven't really won. The, the Brexiteers say we must take control of our borders. Immigration is out of control. Um, lots and lots of Europeans have come in and taken 
jobs and they put pressure on our housing. We have a housing crisis. We don't have enough ha- houses. And they put pressure on our National Health Service. There's a bit of a crisis there too because the health service is in deeply in debt. Um, not the only country in Europe uh, to be in that condition. So they are still talking about we must take control of our borders and stop this uncontrolled immigration. So we ought to have a quick word about that. Immigration. Oh, my God. Really? <laughs> it's such a it's such a um, controversial subject, immigration. It is a controversial subject. I think it's, uh, again, it's head over heart. If you ask how many people have directly been affected by, you know, immigration badly, it's difficult to find too many people who've been directly affected. I can say some things about immigration, okay? So, first of all, uh, economics, the, the economics of immigration. Um, now, actually... I think it's fair to say that immigration actually helps the economy. Why? Because it provides the country with us with people who are willing to work for less money, right? It's not quite as simple as that. Isn't it? There's been that's, uh, an, there's I'd been heard. two um, very good uh, independent analysis in Britain recently about immigration, and they've they've compared outside EU immigration with immigration of the EU, free movement of people within the EU. They've both said it's been particularly good for the economy. The people coming in from the EU have been young people. They've been working hard. They've been paying their taxes. They are not a particular burden on the health service. Whereas uh, people from outside the EU, such as from India, uh, have not been quite the same kind of demographic. The other thing is that in long term, uh, we have an ageing population and the, the proportion of people who are working and contributing to the economy uh, against the proportion of people who are retired is changing really quite quickly. And the economists are saying we need immigration of, of younger people to keep the workforce um, healthy and to keep the uh, income from tax receipts healthy. You've got to remember that in our country, uh, we have very low unemployment. We have almost record low unemployment. We have more people in work now than ever before recorded. And our unemployment level is somewhere around 5%, which is just about as low as it can get. So we don't have a, a, you know, a, a crisis of immigrants you know, taking jobs and leaving people jobless. Really? Because that's what the, uh, the Brexiteers well, say. They, they say these immigrants coming over here, taking our jobs, you know, should have British people for British jobs. That's well, that, what they say. They say that, but the evidence is completely against it. That that um, there is no shortage of jobs. There are lots. There's a skills shortage. Uh, the business people complain bitterly that they have lots and lots of jobs they can't fill because they don't have people with enough skills. And at the other end of the scale, like the agricultural workers in eastern England. Lots and lots of Poles and Latvians and other East Europeans have come in to do the agricultural jobs because they couldn't get anybody to do them. And, and you know, there's lots of evidence that the people who are involved in farming in East Anglia, as it's called, said we don't know what we'd do if we didn't have the immigrants to do the harvests and plant the, the potatoes or whatever. I reckon it's a, a, a response to a feeling of dissatisfaction that many people have. I'm talking on sort of about the, 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 the people who think that there's too much immigration. I think it's a, a part of a sense that uh, uh, there's, 
that our culture is changing. They don't like to, to. They don't like the idea that new people are coming in and they don't sort of contribute to our culture and that we're losing our culture. They see it in that in that sense. But you know, things always change, don't they? Yes, I think that if you if you're a you know a historian and you you look at, look back at this in a few years' time and you try to analyse what's been going on, you can see that there is a general pattern that if you have a big recession, if you have an economic crisis then almost inevitably it leads to a rise of right-wing nationalism because, you know, human beings are tribal and you fall back on your tribe and you you blame the incomers and you blame the foreigners when you're in a, a difficult economic situation. That's always been the case. And the big crash of 2007 and 2008 has inevitably led to a rise of nationalism in all sorts of parts of Europe. So in Austria, we get a party saying, put Austria first, and they're, they're becoming popular. It's just one of those things that happens. You have to stay rational and look at the evidence. And in the UK, the evidence, all the evidence is that we are not suffering from immigration from the EU. So uh, in times of crisis, it seems that people want a solution. They, they, they need a scapegoat. They need to um, f- see who's responsible for... And it's like, in a, okay, in a crisis, people are, I feel bad. Uh, whose fault is it? And it's complicated, the answers to, to, to yeah. why people feel bad and they feel scared in a crisis. It's very easy, too easy, to point at the other person and say, it's because of immigrants. You know, it's because of these people that I don't know coming into my town and sort of giving me a sense that my culture is under threat, my job's under threat. You know, I feel bad and I, I don't know why it's too easy to blame the, 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 sort of the, the foreigner, you know. I think that's part of it. Uh, I think that's part yes, of it. I think, I think it is. You hear people saying that. You know, they say, I was on the tube on the underground the other day, and guess what? I never heard an English, anyone speaking English. Like, it's kind of shocking. Why is that bad? And, and, in, in and you say, well, so what? London is a, a, a multicultural city. What's the problem? Yeah. Then there's the question of terrorism, right? Here's another argument, Dad. Um, people say, well, the European Union... Because of the free movement of people within the union, um, this is a vehicle in which terrorists can come in. So people are scared that the free movement of people will allow terrorists to move through uh, the, 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 the union and that, that you know uh, extremists are coming into the country under the umbrella of the European Union. Well, I think, think? I think it's a terrible argument. I mean, the, this is an argument that the... Uh, the people who want to leave the EU haven't won. And the in the campaign, we've had a whole number of real experts uh, from the military and from the security services and others all saying being within the EU, sharing intelligence with them and working out, you know, joint strategies is uh, much more, uh, gives us much more security than if we weren't at the table. Um, of course, Britain is not in the Schengen area. And your listeners will probably know that the Schengen area of Europe is all the countries that don't have borders. And you, you just you can drive your truck from Spain to Italy without stopping. You know, it, it, it's a borderless zone, the Schengen zone. Britain and Ireland um, are not in the Schengen zone. Just a, uh, There's a small group of countries not in the Schengen zone, and we are not in it. So that's why we still have passport control uh, when people you know, come in from France or Belgium or wherever, uh, we still have that. So 
the idea that uh, leaving the EU would make us more secure is simply not the case. In fact, um, it would be probably more difficult for us uh, to have that control. There, there is a lot of um, immigrants, mainly Africans, who are trying to get into Britain who finish up at Calais on the northern French coast where they sit in a camp because they can't get across. And that's because the French don't let them get on the ferries or get them on the trains. Yeah, the, the f- uh, if, if we weren't part of the EU, why would the French bother? They would say, right, get on the trains. Yeah. It's nothing to do with us anymore. So, in fact, the EU holds on to people. It, the EU actually prevents many people coming into the UK at this point. Yes, it's an agreement. You know, we work together. Mm. And, and I don't see how you could possibly argue that being outside the EU would make you more secure. We need to share information and we need to work together on this big issue of security against terrorism. And it's connected, of course, with immigration from the Middle East. Francois Hollande said... Um, that if the UK left the European Union, there would be consequences. Perhaps what he means is that the um, the, the immigrants who were being held in a camp in Calais would be sort of they they, they might let them uh, they might let them go. They might let them just travel over the channel into they England. Might. We don't know what the famous consequences would be, but mm. it's quite clear that there would be consequences if we leave the EU, many of them extremely complicated. We don't quite know what would happen. I think that illegal immigration would rise if we left the European Union because um, there wouldn't be a system in place to, you know... Well, why would why would countries like uh, the Netherlands and, and Belgium and others, uh, why would they fall over themselves to, to help us if we're not part of the Union? Um, and they have to they have to look after themselves, but they are very European, particularly European countries, those two I mentioned, and they believe in solidarity and they believe in working together. So I don't think they would have the same attitude to Britain if we said we're leaving the EU. They would feel no responsibility for our problems. One more point here. Um, you know, this argument that the European Union allows terrorists to kind of come in um, well, if you remember the terrorist attacks of um, uh, July 2007, okay, um, and uh, that was when sort of uh, extremists um, bombed uh, the London Underground and a bus in central London. I remember the day very well. Um, those extremists didn't come through the EU. They didn't travel all the way from Syria through the EU or anything like that. They were born and they grew up in England. Yes, they were homegrown terrorists, as we call them. So it's radicalized. You know, the terrorist. The EU is not necessarily a gateway for terrorists. The terrorists, uh, you know, might just arrive from within the country. So it's it's not about terrorism. In fact, as you mentioned, uh, when we're members of the EU, we can collaborate with the EU in terms of intelligence and security services, and it's, we, it would be a much more effective system for monitoring and preventing terrorism. And if we, if we didn't collaborate with the EU, then we just it, it would be much, much harder for us to collect intelligence on uh, people that we don't want in our country. That's right. Um, <laughs> we've been go- how long have we been talking well, I can your see poor here. listeners will be probably be completely fast asleep now have we gone past the hour yeah we've done an okay. hour and five minutes well you're about- going to have to return to this subject as we record this it's just a month away to the referendum and at the moment the opinion polls are showing that 
Remain is is gained a bit of ground, mm-hmm. particularly since I think Barack Obama's intervention, um, and uh, and the Brexiteers are just a bit behind in the polls. But personally, I think you have to watch out. There's still a month to go, and the polls in the past have been wrong. And I that's, don't. That's the opinion polls, not the opinion polls, not the Polish opinion polls, not the Polish people. And it's still very close. And I still think it's entirely possible that on June the 23rd, we, we might vote to leave the EU. Really? As astonishing as it may seem. So I think that you should return to this subject uh, after two or three weeks and, and see we're using someone else uh, with their opinions uh, where we are with not many days to go. Yeah, because, you know, I always want my episodes of this podcast to be um, easy, you know, clear and entertaining and fun and motivating to listen to. And uh, I understand that Brexit is such a big uh, subject and many people are interested in it, but it's hard for me to deal with the subject in the way that I would like to deal with it, you know, to make it light and fun and, uh, you know, easily accessible. Just whenever you start talking about the subject, it just gets heavy. Well, we've done our best, Luke, and it is a complicated and serious subject. Um, And of course, I'm sure a lot of your listeners will disagree with me because I think that we should stay. Um, Obviously, there's plenty of people who believe we'll be much better off on our own. I just don't think it's been thought through. We'll see. Only history can tell. Only time can tell what will happen. Um, Dad, thanks so much for kind of talking to me about this because I know it's it's not the... It's, it's, a, not, it's a tough subject. It is a tough subject. So I appreciate you sort of taking the time to talk to me about it. Thank you. I'm sure that my listeners also will appreciate the fact that you've taken time out to talk to them on Luke's English Podcast today. Um, and uh, yeah, I'll be coming back to the subject and uh, we'll be looking at things like language and some of those things in a slightly clearer, hopefully, way in the future. Thanks very much for listening, everyone. And thanks, Dad. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, so there you go. Um, I said there at the end of that chat that it's all a bit complicated. And while recording that interview, I was thinking that it was bound to be a bit difficult to follow. I wonder. I wonder if you managed to follow all of that okay. Did you? Um, Actually, after listening back to the conversation... I think that generally we managed to deal with it in a fairly clear way, especially my dad, who is very articulate and very well informed on the subject. Um, But I I wonder how it was for you. Um, Now, I have a variety of listeners um, to this podcast with varying levels of knowledge and varying levels of English as well. So I'm sure that some of you followed the conversation without too many problems, whereas others might have been a bit lost at times. Um, if you were a little bit lost at times and you continued and you kept listening and you, you've, you've got to this point, then well done. Good job. You, you've been hacking through the jungle there and you've made it. So well done for listening all the way through that if, you've, if you found it difficult. Um, uh, so I, I do think it's worth talking more about Brexit on the podcast, and I plan to go through some of the vocabulary um, associated with this and also to revisit the main arguments in in forthcoming episodes. Um, Also, as we move closer to the referendum date on the 23rd of June, I'm sure that more things will happen in the news. There will probably be more events and more stuff going on, and it will be interesting to keep an eye on the opinion polls. So watch out for more Brexit-related commentary in the near future. Talking of the opinion polls, what do the polls say? We didn't mention that. I'm going to search for that. Poll of polls. I'm searching for a poll of polls, right? 
a poll of polls is basically a poll that's made up of the results from lots of other polls. Uh, and I've, I've, I've gone to whatyouthinks.org uh, and uh, what UK thinks whatukthinks.org, which is a non-partisan information website on UK attitudes to the EU and the EU referendum. So this is, um, I believe, a, a reliable poll which collates lots of information from loads of other polls. So this is probably a pretty good summary. At the moment, um, and this, this poll, um, let's see, this is based on the latest average of six polls from uh, the 17th of May to the 25th of May. So this is like the week that we've just had, essentially. This is the way it stands. And we, we seem to have 53% are in favour of remaining in the EU, and 47% are in favour of leaving the EU. So that's what the uh, the poll of polls on whatukthinks.org is saying. Uh, there might be another poll um, on Financial Times. Um, I'm going to have a look at that. The Financial Times also does its own poll uh, of polls here. So the Financial Times, as of the 25th of May, um, suggests that uh, 46% are in favour of, of staying and 41% are in favour of leaving. So it looks like the Remain camp has got the edge at the moment. This um, Financial Times poll shows that there is actually a section in the middle there. So there's a percentage of people who don't, who just don't know. So what's that? 87 is in total. So what, there's 13% in the middle who don't really know yet. So that 13% in the middle is is going to be absolutely crucial. And that those people who haven't decided yet are going to be uh, very important. Now, my prediction, I mean, we don't know. It's really impossible. It's really, really difficult to predict this. Really hard because, as my dad said, this has never happened before. Mm, I, oh, I, I'm not going to make a prediction. Okay, I'm not going to make a prediction. But what I am going to say is that I think when it comes down to the crunch, I think people tend to vote... Uh, they tend to be a bit cautious. Hmm. I th I think that might be the deciding factor when it comes to making the decision on on the referendum day when people actually make their vote. Are they really going to vote like the the Leave camp is going to be quite a risky choice? I think people tend to be a bit more cautious. But I'm not going to make a prediction. We'll just have to wait and see. Um, so anyway, that was a, that was just like a little bit about the polls at this stage. Um, um, so, so anyway, watch out for more Brexit related commentary on Luke's English podcast in the near future. As ever, I am very keen for you to express your opinions on the website. You obviously, you might have very different opinions to the ones expressed by my dad and by me, uh, in this episode. Um, and I'd love to read those things. You know, I've got an open mind. I, I want to, uh, hear what you have to say. I want to read your comments and stuff. So, Please do leave your comments on the page for this episode. What do you think? Uh, what do you think about my dad's opinions in this episode? And how would you vote in the referendum? Indeed, how are you going to vote if you're a, a, a UK citizen? How are you going to vote in this uh, referendum? Should the UK leave the EU or should the UK remain a part of the EU? Let us know your opinions. Um, now, in fact, let's do a Luke's English podcast EU referendum of our, of our own, shall we? Let's do our own LEP EU poll. Now, I wonder how you, the Lepsters, would vote in this referendum. And in fact, if you go to the page for this episode, I have opened up a Brexit poll. It's the Luke's English podcast Brexit poll. 
Um, so please visit and cast your vote. Um, it's it's completely anonymous. You don't need to add your name and you don't need to give your email address or anything. You just simply click um, uh, leave or remain. Okay, so visit the page for this episode on my website. Scroll down until you find the Brexit poll and just click leave or remain. And let's see what the results will be. I'm very curious to see what the Lepsters uh, would decide in this case. If it was based on listeners to this podcast, I wonder what would happen. Um, Right. Um, Thank you very much again for listening to this episode of Luke's English Podcast. Uh, There'll be more stuff coming your way soon. But for now... I would just say take care, goodbye, have a nice day, have a nice morning, have a nice evening, have a nice night, Uh, wherever you are, whoever you are, whatever situation you happen to be in when you're listening to this. Goodbye, bye, 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 bye. Thanks again for listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. If you enjoyed this episode of Luke's English Podcast, consider signing up for Luke's English Podcast Premium. You'll get regular premium episodes with stories, vocabulary, grammar and pronunciation teaching from me and the usual moments of humour and fun. Plus, with your subscription, you will be directly supporting my work and making this whole podcast project possible. For more information about Luke's English Podcast Premium, go to teacherluke.co.uk slash premium info.